Moment of prayer seeking his blessing upon our worship this afternoon. Shall we pray? Gracious God and Heavenly Father, as we now prepare to go to thy word, we pray cleanse and prepare our hearts to, to stand in thy sacred presence. Graciously, O Lord, remove anything that would hinder us from seeing the very face of the risen Christ in our midst. Descend upon us by thy Spirit in this still and holy hour. Brood upon us by thy Spirit and move our hearts to accept the grace that will be set before us again this afternoon from thy word. Grant that thy Spirit may illumine our hearts and our minds as we listen to thee speaking to us. Grant that the trumpet may give a clear and a certain sound for Lord. If the clarion call is not clear, then it cannot be understood. Grant that we may once again hear the very voice of God as he calls us to faith, obedience, and prayer. Without thy spirit, we hear only empty, meaningless sounds, a clanging of cymbals. (coughs) And yet when graced by thy spirit, those same words become a savor of life. Draw us now unto thyself. Cause us to drink deeply from the well of living waters as we come to thee who alone art the overflowing fountain of all good. May all of our worship be offered to thee from hearts that are circumcised and filled to overflowing with the overwhelming love and grace of God. Grant that all that we say and do here this afternoon may be done in spirit and in truth and grant that all of it may be done in obedience and in gratitude for what thou hast done for us in Christ. By thy spirit, Lord, teach us, tell us what we need to hear. Show us what we ought to do to obey Jesus Christ. Thy word is a lamp unto our feet, a light upon our path. Give us grace to receive thy truth in faith and love that we may be obedient to thy will and live always for thy glory. Open now our hearts and our minds by the power of thy spirit so that as the scriptures are read and the word is preached, we may hear with joy what the spirit intends for us to know. Prepare our hearts, O God, to accept thy word. Silence in us any voice but thine own. Grant that we would not only then be hearers, but as we leave, also be doers of thy word. Through Jesus Christ, in the forgiveness of our sins, we pray. Amen. I invite you now to turn with me in your Bibles to the Gospel of John. John chapter 19. I want to read the verses 17 through to the end of verse 30. John chapter 19. John chapter 19, beginning to read at verse 17. This is the word of God. So they took Jesus, and he went out bearing his own cross to the place called the place of a skull, which is in Aramaic, is called Golgotha. And there they crucified him with two others, one on either side and Jesus between them. Pilate also wrote an inscription, put it on the cross, and it read, Jesus of Nazareth, the king of the Jews. Many of the Jews read this inscription, for the place where Jesus was crucified was near the city, and it was written in Aramaic, in Latin, and in Greek. And so the chief priests of the Jews said to Pilate, Do not write the king of the Jews, but rather this man said, I am king of the Jews. Pilate answered, What I have written, I have written. 
When the soldiers had crucified Jesus, they took his garments and divided them into four parts, one part for each soldier, also his tunic. But the tunic was seamless, woven in one piece from top to bottom. So they said to one another, Let us not tear it, but cast lots for it, to see whose it shall be. This was to fulfill the scripture, which says, They divided my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. So the soldiers did these things. But standing by the cross of Jesus were his mother or his mother and his mother's sister Mary, the wife of Clopas, and Mary Magdalene. When Jesus saw his mother and the disciple whom he loved standing nearby, he said to his mother, Woman, behold your son. Then he said to the disciple, Behold your mother. And from that hour the disciple took her to his own home. After this, Jesus, knowing that all things that all was now finished, said, To fulfill the scripture, I thirst. A jar full of sour wine stood there, so they put a sponge full of the sour wine on a hyssop branch and held it to his mouth. When Jesus had received the sour wine, he said, It is finished. And he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. Thus far, and the words of our text for this, for this afternoon are framed in verse 30. When Jesus had received the sour wine, he said, It is finished. And he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. Thus far, the reading of God's holy word. May he add his blessing to the hearing, the reading, and the preaching of the word of God again this afternoon. Beloved congregation of our Lord Jesus Christ, the sermon of this afternoon is the last of a series of sermons on the words of Christ as he hung on that cross of Golgotha. The first four we have heard earlier. You will remember, hopefully, the last couple of Sundays that I had the privilege to lead you in worship that we heard, first of all, Jesus saying, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. And then we listened as he comforted the criminal, assuring him that he would accompany him in glory. I tell you today, you shall be with me in glory. And then we went on and we watched and we listened as he provided for his mother before dying by establishing that mother-son relationship between her and John, the disciple. Woman, behold thy son. Son, behold thy mother. And then we heard his anguished cry of God forsaken us. My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? And he would then yet cry out with the words, I thirst. And I had intended to examine those words with you this morning. But due to the circumstances, we will save that for a later date, Lord willing. And this afternoon, we want to examine together his last words before dying. We will hear, we will hear not anguish. We will hear not suffering, not despair, not desolation. No, we will hear in those words, victory. In our text of this afternoon, we hear his cry of jubilation. It is finished. From the words of the victim on the cross, we now turn to the words of the the victor. It is said that every cloud has a silver lining, and that was indeed true for the darkest cloud of all. The cross had two sides to it. And so I want to minister God's word to you this afternoon, using as my theme the words of Christ, it is finished. We will see that the cross shows us the goal of the incarnation, And then we want to note that it forms the basis for our salvation. So the goal of the incarnation and the basis for our salvation. May the Holy Spirit grace us with his presence and may he give us open ears and receptive hearts to hear and to receive what he has to say to the church again this afternoon. Congregation, as a pastor, it is not unusual when visiting the home of a 
terminally ill parishioner to be greeted at the door by a grieving family member saying, Reverend, it's too late. It's finished. And what they mean, of course, is that the suffering of a husband, a wife, a mother, a father, whatever, is finally over. The suffering is over. It is finished. Sometimes for months we watch someone we loved hovering between life and death. We watch as they suffer great pain. And then, and then finally and yet suddenly it is finished. And when such a death occurs in the home of a Christian family, then these words do not evidence a rebellious spirit. No, this was, this was the will of the Lord. And we accepted it as such. However, it was not the will of the family. They would have willed to spare their loved one. They knew they had to give him up, but they, wanted to, they would have liked to have spared him those long hours of suffering. They had stood helplessly as they watched. They, they, would, they would have willed it differently, helplessly and with resignation. They watched days, weeks, sometimes months of suffering. And then finally, when death finally ends the suffering with a note of acceptance, sometimes with a note of relief, but also with resignation, we say, it's over. It is finished. And the same words now we hear from our Lord. But here they are not words of resignation. They're not words of a helpless family member or a helpless martyr. It was not even an expression of satisfaction that his suffering now at last was over. We know that all of his life, and especially on the cross, he suffered. And the, the common interpretation here holds that Christ here cries out in relief that his suffering was finally over. It is finished. But if we think that's what he meant, we would have it all wrong. It was not a cry of relief that his suffering was over. No, it was a cry of victory. Rather, it was, it was the word of amen, if you will. In his cry, it is finished. He signaled that all that he had come to do from heaven, all that he had come from heaven to do was now done. It is finished. And in its context now, the supreme passion of the cross had ended. The weight of God's wrath that had wrung from him the cry, My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? But that fury of God, that fury, that anger of God had now been lifted. The excruciating torment of body and soul that had brought these words, I thirst, that too had passed. After he had been given the sour wine to drink, he said, It is finished. But we may not interpret these words to mean that Christ here cries in relief that his suffering was finished. Oh no, a much greater work had been accomplished. And that work now, that work was finally finished. But what was it that was finished? His body still hung on that tree. Death had as yet not escaped him. His, his, or, or, or his, spirit, had not, his spirit had not yet uh, left his body. What then was finished? Well, in essence, the essential work of the atonement the essential work of the atonement was finished. He had borne the full fury of God's wrath against the sin of the world. And now all that remained to deliver him from pain and suffering was his death. Oh, his cry was not one of resignation. It was a word of victory. He does not cry out here in defeat. The cross was not beyond his control. He was not helpless before the forces of men or demons. No, we remember that he went to the cross that that all things might be accomplished and that the scriptures might be fulfilled. Earlier, as, he, as, as the road to the cross begins, 
Matthew records for us that Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem. He must suffer many things. He must be killed, and he must be raised up again on the third day. And then as we read that narrative, we hear the impulse of Peter, no way, Lord, no way, I forbid it. Far be it that this should happen to you. And then follows the stern word of the rebuke of Christ. Get behind me, Satan, for you are not mindful of the things of God. You see, Peter sought to prevent Jesus from going to the cross because he was, he, was, he was not mindful of the things of God. And what is meant here is that Peter had failed to understand that the cross was an integral, necessary part of God's plan of redemption. My dear people of God, God had determined that the way of salvation for men was that Jesus must go to the cross. But Jesus was not helpless on that cross. He was not defeated there on Golgotha. No, remember with me again his own words. I lay down my life that I can take it up again. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down on myself. Capture that with me. The concept is important. Jesus was nailed on that cross, not because he was a helpless victim. Indeed, the soldiers had fastened him to that tree, but he was not powerless against his enemies. No, Christ was nailed to the cross, but he was not powerless but he was nailed because he chose to allow himself to be nailed to that cross. He remained on that cross because he willed, he chose, he willed to remain on it. Not for one single moment was Jesus helpless, not before those who condemned him, nor before those who had crucified him. All that had happened to him, all that had happened, had happened, because he had determined it to be so. Only of Christ can it be said, He was the master of his fate, the captain of his soul. The cross, the anguish, the suffering, all of it, not as a result of the power of his enemy. Oh, no, all of it, because he had willed it to be so in order to save and rescue fallen men and women like ourselves. Try to capture all of this with me. We hear him say, it is finished. And we now know that men and demons had sought to finish him on the cross. Even his own had sought to prevent him from going to that cross. Peter would forbid it, and God had used them all to work out his divine purpose for man's salvation. In order to save men and women, he must go to that cross. To that end, and for that purpose, he had come into the world. And to that end, and for that purpose, he went to the cross. And now that task was completed. Therefore, he could say, not in resignation, but with great satisfaction, in victory, he could say, it is finished. In this context, now, take a moment to compare with me the the words of Scripture as we find it in the creation account. When you take your Bible and you begin to read at the very beginning in Genesis, you read that on the first day God created the heavens and the earth and he divided the darkness from the light. And then we read that God saw it and God said it was good. On the second day he divided the waters from the dry land and again we hear God say it is good. On the third day God caused the earth to bring forth grass and herbs and trees and again God looked at it and said it is good. And the same at the end of each creation day, we read, and God saw that it was good. But at the end of the sixth day, we read, God saw that it was finished. The creation was now finished, and it was good, even very good. 
And in somewhat the same way now we are to understand here in the words of Christ, he spoke them with satisfaction, for he spoke of a work that was good, and a good work had now been finished. But, but those who stood around him and the undiscerning reader of the scriptures still ask, what is finished? They see only a man nailed on the cross and his body still hangs there. The nails were still in his hands. The crown of thorns were still on his brow. The blood still stained his back from the scourging and the whips that he had received. What then was finished? Where was this satisfaction? The unbeliever says, I see no victory here. Indeed, the undiscerning sees only a man and he sees only what man has done to Christ. But the child of God sees here what God was doing through Christ for the world. Therein now lies the key to unlocking the meaning of these words of Christ. It is finished. We can understand those words in no other way than by setting them into the context of the larger plan of God's, God's plan of redemption for the world. My dear people of God, the Apostle Peter writes that Jesus was delivered up by the determinate counsel and foreknowledge of God. And from those words and from many other related passages, we're given to know that Jesus died on that cross with not only the foreknowledge of God, in fact, he went to the cross in accordance with the determinate counsel, or if you will, of the decree of God. In other words, in other words, God had determined that this would happen. And people of God, we come to learn here what is known theologically as the, as the covenant of redemption. The world does not, in fact, the world cannot understand the meaning of a covenant in a biblical sense. To them, a covenant is simply a contract or an agreement between two parties. It's a legal document which binds each party to meet certain conditions. In fact, a legal covenant can even force men to act beyond their will or ability. If a contract exists and men cannot or will not honor it, there are consequences, there are penalties described in the terms of the contract. And that's the world's concept of a covenant. But when God establishes a covenant, it is so much different. The covenant of redemption, it was agreed upon between the Father and the Son, and it is far different. And so we ask, then, what was the covenant of redemption? The answer is that in return for the sinless life and sacrificial death of the Son, the Father agreed to present him with an elect number of people ordained to eternal life through the shedding of blood. I want to repeat that the concept is so urgent in this context. The covenant of redemption, the terms of the agreement between God the Father and God the Son, was that in return for the sinless life, and the sacrificial death of the Son, then the Father would present him with an elect number of people, people ordained to eternal life through the shedding of the blood. Understand that now well with me and commit it to your memory. In the councils of the eternity, in other words, long before the world's foundations were even laid, long before the fall into sin in the garden, before that had even taken place, God the Father and God the Son had counseled together and they had agreed together to provide a way of salvation for a fallen world. All of mankind would die in Adam and now God and Christ agree to provide a way of return Oh, not for all of mankind, 
but for those upon whom would God would set his particular love. The elect. My dear precious people of God, if you're, if you're able to grasp or understand this agreement, if you're able to understand this covenant between the Father and the Son, then you will begin to see that the cross, it was not first erected there on Calvary's hill. Oh no, if it would be possible, if it would be possible for you and I to be there when the world was still dark and void, meaning if we could have been there before anything or anyone had even been created, then we would see already there, we would see the cross. The Apostle John writes that the Lamb was slain from the foundation of the world. Also, Peter writes to the Jews of the dispersion that they were redeemed with the precious blood of the Lamb who was foreordained before the foundation of the world but was revealed to them in these times. As Peter points out there, Christ had been foreordained as the Lamb to be slain already before the foundation of the world, but that event was still to be worked out later in history. In other words then, the Father and the Son entered into this agreement already in the beginning. No, I say that wrong. More correctly, even before the beginning, even before the foundation of the world, with the creation of man came the fall into sin. But even before that happened, it was determined between God, the Father, and the Son that at a certain point in history, the Son would enter into the human race as a God-man, and he would do so with the express purpose of going to the cross to save a fallen humanity. That now was his work, to save sinners. He must save them from the justice of a holy God who could not look upon any sin. He must redeem unto God a people out of every tribe and tongue and nation by the shedding of his own precious blood. Oh, now we understand. Because because this covenant between the first and the second persons of the Trinity had been made even before the world was made. Therefore, We now know how it was possible for Christ to explain all the details of the events to come as we hear them from Matthew. Every detail had been discussed and decided. That covenant now was why we read in the words of Luke 9 that Jesus steadfastly set his face to go to Jerusalem. He had covenanted with his Father for the redemption of man. That was the very reason that he had come into the world. And nothing could prevent him from doing what he had come to do on that cross. Every step of the way, he walked according to the timetable as it had been set in eternity. At the last, the end was in sight. The men and women around him did not know. Even his disciples did not understand. But he knew, he knew that cross was ever before his eyes. And in that context, we can understand now why it was that earlier in his ministry, Jesus forbids his disciples that they would tell the Jews who he was. In several incidents, you will know, we read in the Gospels that Jesus commands his disciples and others that they were not to reveal who he was. It sounds unbelievable to us. It boggles our minds. Why would Jesus want to prevent anyone from knowing that he was the Son of God? Yet now, 
Just before the cross, we read of his triumphal entry on what we call Palm Sunday. Now there is motion and commotion and children swinging palm branches and shouting, Hosanna! And now Jesus allows that praise. He encourages it. Why? Why the contradiction? People of God, that becomes clear to us here in this context as we understand God's timetable. You see, earlier when Christ commits the disciples to silence concerning him, it was because his hour had not yet come. Jesus sought to not antagonize the Jews unnecessarily, lest they become aroused prematurely and they should arise against him before his hour had come. But now his hour is come, and Jesus will arouse their wrath through the praises of even children. Oh, let them be angry now, for the cross, the hour of the cross has come. We follow the last few days of Jesus, and we see the anger of the Jews increasing, and, and all of it working towards that, that predetermined climax, that the exact predetermined hour. People got to follow his last few days with me. We read in Mark 11 that Jesus went into the temple, and he looked around. Already he was planning for the next day. And on the morrow he returns and he overthrows the tables of the money changers. The Jews were furious. And slowly he begins to provoke their anger, building up to that climax of Golgotha. And then he frustrates them with his insistence that they give unto Caesar what was Caesar's. And he confronts the the Sadducees with the question of marriage. And bit by bit, the Jews become ever more incensed. Why? Because the hour had come in accordance with God's plan. It was time. It was time. It was time for the cross. (coughs) The hatred of the Jews would become an instrument to bring about the death of the Son of God. Follow that week with me. Prior to his death, we read that then they sought to see how they could take him and put him to death. But not on the feast, they said, lest there be an uproar from the Jews, they said. And that same evening, Jesus said to his disciples, the feast of the Passover is two days away, and the Son of Man will be crucified. Not on the Passover, said the Jews. On the Passover, said Jesus. And on the Passover, he was crucified. Why? Because man would not determine that Jesus would die, and man would not determine when Jesus would die. (coughs) That hour was determined by the Father already in eternity, and that hour had now come. If you will, the clock of God's timetable had struck. The time was now. It had been planned by the determinate will of God before the foundation of the world. My dear people of God, as Peter says, gird up the loins of your mind with me. Continue to follow me as we consider for just a few moments exactly the point at which Jesus could say, it is finished. It was not finished when they drove the nails through his hands. It was not finished when they planted that tree on Golgotha's hill. It was not finished when the crowd mocked and jeered. No, he must be stricken. He must be smitten of God. He must be afflicted. He must be cast into outer darkness. It was only after he had suffered the terror and the anguish of hell, only after he had cried out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? After 
having been forsaken by God, only then could he say, it is finished. When at last the darkness was dispelled, when at last the light of the sun again shone down upon the earth, only then could men and women know that the plan of God, determined before the foundation of the world, had been brought to fruition. When that plan was done, when the plan of God was all done, then he cried out victoriously, triumphantly, jubilantly, it is finished. His suffering was finished. His experience of the God-forsaken desolation of hell was finished. When he had drunk the cup of God's cup of redemption to its bitter dregs, when his work under the covenant of redemption was done, when his work of redemption was perfect and complete, then he could jubilantly cry out in victory, it is finished. We've got most of contemporary Christianity would agree with us when we talk about the sovereignty of God. However, when it comes to the Christ, then they hold before us an impotent, begging, pleading, helpless Jesus who wants men and women to be saved, but, but who is powerless to bring that about unless man chooses to accept or to cooperate. But think with me. We, heard, we hear the words of Christ in John 17. Father, they were yours, but you have given them to me. How? Through that covenant of redemption agreed upon by the Father and the Son. Christ consciously sets his face toward Jerusalem. Christ consciously determines to allow himself to be nailed on that cross. Christ consciously endures the torments of hell in, in, in order, in order to, to honor the covenant with the Father. And in the process, he purchases, not with silver, not with gold, but with his precious blood, the body and soul of every one of those given him by the Father in eternity. My dear, dear people of God, do not let the impoverished Arminian deceive you. According to the scriptures, with his precious blood spilled on Golgotha, Jesus purchases the body and the soul of every one of those given him by the Father in eternity. And what that means then, that every soul determined by the Father for whom Christ dies shall be found among the assembly of the elect, among that great multitude that no one can number. It can be no other way. They were given him by the Father already before the foundation of the world, and they were brought by the Son, they were bought by the Son there on Golgotha. Therefore it is finished. In essence, Jesus is shouting out there on Golgotha's hill, I have bought them, I have bought them body and soul, and they are now mine forever. Oh, many would agree with us. They would have us know that indeed Jesus saves, but they point to their scriptures and they read to us that he that comes to me I will in no wise cast out. And then all the emphasis is placed on a man's coming. Man needs to come to Christ. They tell us that decision must be made by man to come to Jesus. But, but, but read that text. Read that same text in its entirety with me. It reads, all that the Father gives me shall come to me. And he that comes to me I will not cast out. Why not? The answer is here in our text. The answer is here in our text. 
because of that covenant of redemption between the Father and the Son. The Father will bring them to the Son one by one out of every tribe, tongue, and nation. He will not cast them out because they were given to the Son already in eternity. And for them he prayed, for them he paid, for them he died. When Jesus now cries out, it is finished, he is in fact saying, the salvation of the elect is finished. The salvation of the elect is guaranteed. It is finished. The Lord Jesus says in the Gospel of John, this is the will of the Father, that all of whom he has given me, I shall lose none of them, and I will raise them up on the last day. And then immediately he adds, this is the will of the Father, that everyone who believes in me may have everlasting life, and those I will raise up on the last day. Pay close attention. Those two groups now, those given by the Father and those who believe in the Son, are one and the same people. They are the elect. Think with me then. How can one be certain that he has been given to the Son? Well, to answer that question, we need to ask a prior question. To determine if we are indeed among those purchased by Christ, it must first be established that we are in possession of true and saving faith. And I can almost hear you framing the question. How can I know that I am among that multitude given by the Father to the Son before the foundation of the world? How can I know that I am among that people for whom Christ died? How can I know that my salvation is now guaranteed because of that drama on Golgotha? How may I know that God accepts Christ's blood in, in, in the place of mine? People got, some people are determined to make a problem where none exists. Some people are determined to, com- to complicate the Christian faith. They ask, how can I know if I'm truly a child of God? How can I know if I am indeed one of those given by the Father to the Son? How can I know if I am among that number for whom Christ died out, cried out, it is finished? Congregation, you can know. You can find the answer to the question You can find it in your Bible, in the letters of the Apostle John. There we read, Herein do we know that we love God if we keep his commandments. He that says, I know him, but keeps not his commandments, is a liar, and the truth is not in him. Answer now that question for yourself. Despite your frequent failure and your weakness and shortcomings, Do you keep his commandments? Is the law of God precious to you? Are God's commandments a delight for you, as the psalmist writes? O hard words of the apostle, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. If you do not keep my commandments, the truth is not in you, and God's wrath abides on you. Hard words, but they speak to a fundamental fact of true spiritual life. You see, true saving faith is not a vague, uh, indefinable emotional feeling. No, the marks of true saving faith can be seen daily in the lives of those who truly belong to Christ. This is the way. If you love me, you will keep my commandments. In other words, if you not only confess to love him, but if you also accompany that confession with an obedient life and lifestyle, That is evidence of your love for him. It is evidence of your faith. And it affords you the precious 
assurance of salvation with faith in your heart, it will be a delight for you to walk, to act, to talk, and to live as he did. People of God, if there was anyone here this day who does not know Christ in that way, if there be anyone here who is saying in their heart, I have not kept his commandments in that way, then I have another question for you. And the question is this, do you want to know him? Do you want to know and do the will of the Lord? Do you want to know the true peace of the Lord? Then go and stand beside the Philippian jailer as he asked the greatest of all questions. What must I do to be saved? Hear then the answer of Paul. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. From that moment on, from the moment you're able to say from a heart born of faith, I know Christ died for me. From that very moment on, you will know that you were given to Christ from eternity in eternity and that therefore nothing, nothing, not even death can separate you from the love of God. Know then that for you, Christ has cried out, it is finished. Shall we pray? Father, once again we've heard the gospel and what a glorious gospel it was. Oh, Father, to know that long before the world's foundations were even laid, that already then you knew us and set your love upon us and that Jesus then agreed to pay, to suffer for our, in our stead and that he would live our life and die our death so that we could live and reign with him in all eternity. Oh, Lord, what language shall we borrow to, to thank thee, dearest friend, for this thy dying sorrow, thy pity without end. Oh, make us thine forever. And should we fainting be, Lord, let us never, never outlive our love for thee. Amen.